So we are um, in Romans chapter 11. This is our second week of hopping back into Romans. And last week we looked at the question that Paul offered to uh, the, his readers. Basically he's saying to them, is God done with Israel? In Romans 9 and 10 we saw that that it seems that the emphasis of Romans 9 was that the rejection, uh, the large rejection of the people of Israel, the way they rejected Jesus was based upon God's sovereign choice. But then in Romans chapter 10, we saw that Paul's emphasis instead not, was not on God's sovereign choice, but on their responsibility, that this idea of God had hardened them, but they had hardened themselves, worked together to bring about this, this reality that God was done with Israel. And we are in the wrong presentation, guys. So this week, that is uh, last week. I don't know what happened there, but if, you, if, if uh, you can find it, let me know. And if you can't, then we'll just go without it. So uh, by way of review, <laughs> God, uh, <laughs> Paul asked that question, uh, is God done with, with Israel? And then uh, the verse that we looked at was from Romans 11.1, 1, where he says that, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. And Paul's answer was threefold. He said, no, look at God. God is faithful. God foreknew these people. These are his people. So he couldn't reject them because that would, that would uh, reject them forever because that would be like uh, somewhat divergent from the fact that God had foreknown them and, and that they were his people. And so those two things are incompatible. So look at God. He's faithful. Second, look at me. I'm an Israelite and God hasn't rejected me. And then third, he said, look at his history. And he, looked, he, and he used the, the example of Elijah and how Elijah, though he thought he was the only one left after he had battled the prophets of Baal and, and a story found that we find in the book of, of, of Kings, uh, after he had battled them and God had, had emerged victorious, uh, Elijah in a, in a very dark place in his life said, I, I'm the only one left who serves you. And, and he was fearful for his life as he was being chased by the, the, king of, uh, the queen and king of Israel. And, and God says to him, no, you know, you are not the only one left. Uh, in fact, there's 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Uh, to Baal. And, and he says, in the same way, there is also at this present time a remnant that is chosen by grace. And so, and so the emphasis that Paul was making was that there is always a remnant that God has chosen by grace, but it is absolutely by his grace and not by works. In other words, it wasn't by Israel's faithful fulfillment of the law that the remnant exists, but instead it was by the fact that God, through his gracious act, had created this remnant, had preserved this remnant for himself. Unfortunately, God also mentions that the rest of the people are hardened. And so, whereas the remnant exists, the rest are hardened, and God then um, basically uses Paul to, to remind us about this faithfulness of God and how God has continued to preserve this remnant throughout history, and he, in, in fact, preserves it today. Which brings us to the passage then that we want to look at today, which is from Romans also, of course, 11, and beginning in verse 11. So you can look on these notes that are in your program or bring it up on your device or in your own Bible. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. So it's Romans 11, 11, and I'm going to read all the way down through verse 16. Follow along if you would. I ask then, have they stumbled, they, of course, referring to Israel, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the, to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I am speaking to you, to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just, uh, again, so thankful for the gift of your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes to what Paul is, is wanting to share with us today. And um, as, as you speak to us, God, again, we pray that you would open our ears uh, to, to, to your will and to your way. And that you would really soften our hearts so that we could, Lord, walk in obedience when we leave here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to share with you this, this idea then about um, this, this chain of blessing, if you will, that, is, uh, that, that Paul seems to indicate. And this, this chain of blessing that he's going to refer to in these first few verses that we looked at today is made up of three links. And the first link is that Israel's loss leads to the Gentile, Gentiles' gain. Basically, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to offer theological meaning to a historical context. Uh, the historical context is something that's very real. In the, in the book of John, chapter 1, verses, verses 11 through 13, John writes this, He, that is Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own, referring to Israel, did not receive him. That was their loss. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a, of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Israel's loss led to the Gentiles' gain. Paul is saying there's a theological meaning to a historical reality. In fact, on four separate occasions in the book of Acts, Luke refers to this idea of the Jews' rejection of the gospel being something that benefits the Gentiles. The first one is, is found in the book of Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 46. It's during the first missionary journey that Paul has, and there he and his compatriots are in a place known as Pisidian Antioch. And there, in, in chapter 13, verse 46, the, right, Luke writes this, Then Paul and Bar Barnabas answered them boldly, speaking to Jews at this point. We had to speak the word of God to you first. What did John 1 say? He came to that which was his own. He came to his own people. Paul's saying, I, I, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. The, Israel, the, is, the Israel's loss led to the Gentiles' gain. There's two, two more occasions you can see. Look them up on your own. We won't take the time to look at them. But uh, in Corinth and Ephesus, both, Paul started in the synagogue first 
When he was rejected in the synagogue, he then moved on into and basically created like a, almost like a Gentile mission outpost in a secular facility. And that's where he ministered to the Gentiles. And the fourth occasion is when he uh, goes to Rome. And so again, four separate and very significant occasions in the historical movement of the gospel in Paul's life himself, it demonstrates this idea that Israel's loss leads to the Gentile king. Second link in this is that Gentile salvation then makes Israel jealous. In Acts, Luke mentions the jealousy of the Jews toward the apostles in chapter 5, in chapter 13, and chapter 17. It's almost as if the Jews are like, how is this happening? How are, are, are all of these uh, things, the way in which these, these apostles are, are ministering to the Gentiles and, and their message is spreading? How is all of this happening? You know, it's, but I, I think that the envy that Paul is, is talking about in our, in our particular passage, where he says salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, is a deeper sort of envy. It refers to the blessing of salvation and that, that the way in which this blessing of salvation has come upon Gentile people, people whom the Jews consider to be very, 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 very far from God. And so Paul is suggesting that when they see the work of God in their lives, that they too would want that for themselves. And so the second link is, though, the, though it seems like somewhat kind of weird to say it would make someone jealous and that's a good thing, Paul is saying that he's hopeful and he's, and he's indicating that the experience that the Gentiles are having would make Israel want what they once had but don't have but now see it in the life of someone else. The third link is that eventually Israeli restoration will bring a worldwide blessing a worldwide blessing. There is a fullness here, and, and that's what the, the verse 12 begins to introduce us to. It says in verse 12, if you look at it again, now if their transgression brings riches for the world, that's their loss, Gentile gain. Transgression, riches to the world. If their failure, riches for the Gentiles, again, their loss, Gentile gain. How much more will their fullness bring? So Paul has basically taken it like this uh, circuitous route. Israel rejects Gentiles' benefit. Gentiles receive salvation, causes Israel to be jealous. But when Israel receives and has this restoration, it will create even a much more blessing for the entire world. Now, at this point, Paul has kind of left us to guess as to what that might be. He doesn't answer. He doesn't clarify what that will look like. He simply says, how much more will their fullness bring? When the Israelites receive fullness, when they are restored, there will be both a qualitative and a quantitative aspect to it, I would suggest, is the emphasis that Paul is making. That not only would their fullness be something where they are more, they are more uh, that which God had designed them to be, but there also will be a more in that the remnant that will go from kind of a trace minority to something that would grow beyond and stretch toward a majority. So Paul seems to indicate in this that this, the, in this chain of blessing, that what, what, what began with Israel's rejection ultimately that led to a Gentile uh, uh, blessing would create even a bigger blessing for the world when they actually receive him. Well, then he takes that, and I know I'm moving super quick today, guys, so hang with me. I know because baptism is everything. I, I want to try to get through all of this if we possibly can. From that point, uh, Paul is going to move then to a commentary on his ministry. 
In some translations, Paul says, I make much of my ministry. Two different commentators say this about the way in which Paul does this. One commentator says he gives himself to it unholy and unreservedly. Another commentator says he fulfills it with all his might and devotion. In a a translation known as the New Life Version that I found this week, Paul says to them, I want you to know how important my job is. I want you to, and, and, it's, and the word that, that's used there is a word that means to magnify. And it's almost like Paul is magnifying or glorifying his ministry. That's why some English translations say he wants to make much of his ministry or like this one in a dynamic way says, he wants them to know how important it is. And his commentary on his ministry is he basically is gonna repeat the same themes that he just stated in terms of that, that progression from Israel to the Gentiles, Gentiles to Israel and Israel back to the the entire world. He's now going to repeat that in the way he describes his ministry. And the first thing he's going to say is he's going to say, I'm wanting to stir up envy. Seems like an odd thing for a a pastor to want to do, right? But if you define envy as the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another, then if that thing which is possessed by someone else is something which is right and good, namely salvation, a relationship with God, then of course Paul is saying, I'm hoping through my ministry to the Gentiles, because he is an apostle to the Gentiles, that he will stir up and envy in his own people that reality that he talked about in the first couple of verses where the, the salvation of the Gentiles would make Israel jealous. He wants to do that with his own ministry. He wants to stir up envy so that, the, that what they would desire would be this fullness of life, this wholeness of life, this reality of experiencing a relationship with God that is no longer experienced by, the, by Israel because of their rejection. And the second thing Paul says is, in my ministry, and, and I make much of it, I want you to know how important it is because I'm, I'm hoping to stir up envy. And then secondly, I'm hoping that it will create new life for some. Now, Remember that Paul's hope is in the fullness of the restoration of Israel. Okay, so that, that's uh, like a, the, his hope, his dream, and, and that's his vision. That's the way what God has laid on his heart about this fullness, this in explosive restoration of the nation of Israel. But what Paul is saying, and the, the reason he simply says new life for some is, I would offer to you that he's simply saying that in a modest, humble way, I'm hoping that I can do just a little small part. That I could just have a small part in a few people coming to know Jesus as Savior. And so it's not as if Paul is saying that he expects the movement of God to be small, but I think in modesty he's saying, I hope that in my ministry that I can simply be an instrument of God's use so that a few could come to know God as Savior. Then he's going to wrap up this passage in the way we're going to wrap up today. In conclusion, Paul is going to offer an escalated restatement. Now remember, he's already said this whole idea, Israel to Gentiles, Gentiles back to Israel, Israel to the entire world. He's restated it by describing his ministry. And now he's going to actually restate it a third time. And it's going to be an escalated restatement. He's going to say this, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, remember, They rejected, it opened up the path to the Gentiles. Luke mentions that on four different occasions in the book of Acts. We see that historically in the movement of the way way God works. So he says, if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, 
what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, what is Paul talking about here when he says their acceptance, that is Israel's acceptance, what will it mean but life from the dead? Now, there's three, kind of three options. The first is literal, that Paul would be referring to the general resurrection on the last day, the final consummation of all things, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal life that will follow. That's the conversion of Israel, if this is the correct interpretation, if it's literal, the conversion of Israel would signal the resurrection of the, the last stage of the eschatological process that was initiated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, certainly in Jewish apocalyptic literature, the resurrection of Israel is usually associated with the restoration of Israel, is usually associated with the resurrection of the dead. But I think here, life from the dead, uh, in, in the way, in the, even the phrase that Paul uses, life from the dead, when he often uses another word to, when he's referring to the general resurrection, it seems that, that Paul is, is, would not be indicating that his ministry to the Jews would be something that is, it is leading to the general resurrection of the dead. So most likely, the best option is not to interpret this, that Paul is referring to the literal resurrection of the dead. A second interpretation could be spiritual, that is, that Paul is referring to us being raised with Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite themes. But remember, to be raised with Christ is the status and experience of all Christian people. It belongs to salvation. It's one of the riches that we experience. It's one of the riches that Gentile uh, Christians have already received. So much greater riches... Right? This idea, this idea of, of experiencing much greater riches would not be, it doesn't seem to like, like it would fit with the understanding that Paul's referring to, a, uh, referring to this as a spiritual life from dead. But instead, it's probably more likely a figurative interpretation. Paul foresees this unimaginable blessing that is going to enrich the Gentiles a worldwide blessing which will so, so far surpass anything that anyone has ever experienced before, that the only thing that he can liken it to is life from the dead. Maybe he's thinking back uh, to, to, to the Old Testament re reality about, about the way Israel would experience life from dead, that, do, that, that uh, dead bones would come alive again. Maybe Paul is, is thinking about that and, and kind of applying it to the, to the worldwide blessing that is to come so that he's trying to say that, listen, if as good as the reconciliation of the Gentiles is, as it relates to it being precluded or, or preceded by the rejection of Israel. How much better these blessings will be for the world when Israel believes. Does that make sense? He says, if, if their rejection, that is Israel's rejection, brings reconciliation to the world, if they accept how much greater this blessing would be for the world. He doesn't really define what that blessing is going to be. But instead, he simply offers in this escalated restatement, this idea, this hopefulness that there would be something that we have yet to experience that would be part of the restoration of Israel and its impact on the entire world. That escalated restatement then is followed by, in conclusion, as he wraps up this, this uh, portion of his word to the Romans, this, uh, two very simple metaphors. The first metaphor is a batch of dough, a batch of dough. 
And the point here is probably that as when a representative piece is consecrated to God, the whole belongs to him. So when the first converts believe, the, con- the conversion of the rest can be expected to follow. So Paul uses the first uh, image is the, is the batch of dough to make that point. And then his second image that he uses is of a tree and branches. And that basically, I think, is Paul ba- leading him, leading us uh, to, toward his introduction and development of the allegory of the olive tree, which is what we're going to focus on next week. So the point for today is as God has continued to be faithful to his promise to Israel. It will continue to impact not only Israel, but everyone. Their rejection led to salvation. That salvation led to envy. That that restoration leads to an experience of this worldwide blessing that comes from the Father that we have yet to experience, but will be something that is phenomenal and beyond maybe what we can even imagine. And so our hope, our prayer is that God would continue to work in the life of his people through the gospel. Because remember, Paul's point, Israel will not be saved by a faithful observance of the law, but Israel will be saved in the same way that a Gentile person is saved, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and through a response in faith to that gracious gift that comes through his shed blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the emphasis on salvation in grace. Thank you for the reminder of you being always and forever at work. And we pray, God, that as we uh, remember the work, of, the work of Paul to labor in the, in the field of, of, of a gospeler, that we would also be faithful to our calling to be witnesses, to be salt, to be light. We know, Lord, that, that your desire is to see um, the, the, the message of the gospel spread in an exponential way. And we pray that we could be agents of that in the same way that Paul was, that we too might be pe- some people who could be um, instruments of yours so that some could be saved in your overall plan of redemption for the world. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.